we open God's word this morning, our scripture reading is from Psalm 25. Psalm 25, which we read in connection with Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism on the final petition of the Lord's Prayer. Psalm 25, superscription tells us that this is a psalm of David. And he says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice. And the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. To such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many. They hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Then you can turn to page 896 in the back of your hymnals. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 40 in connection with the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. We've looked at a number of psalms in connection with the various petitions of the Lord's Prayer as the psalms teach us to pray in many of the same categories as the Lord's Prayer. And so we'll read Lord's Day 52 on the sixth petition in connection with Psalm 25, and we'll read these questions responsively beginning with question 127, which asks, what does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment, and our sworn enemies 
the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. And how do you conclude this prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This means we have made all these petitions of you because as our all-powerful king, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good and because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. And finally, what does that little word amen express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be, for it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. Beloved, today is a joyous day as we've witnessed the public profession of faith of 10 young people, including the baptism of our brother James on the basis of that same profession. Psalm 25 is a psalm that is not unrelated to this occasion, but when the psalmist says, Lord, I lift my soul to thee, as, as we sang a bit earlier, he goes on to say, Oh my God, I trust in you. That is a confession of faith. You might remember we saw on Psalm, uh, in Psalm 24 on, on Ascension Day that to lift up your soul to an idol is to trust in it. And so to lift up your soul to God is to trust in him. That's what you have just done in the presence of God. And of his people, you have lifted up your soul to him. And yet to do so is, in a sense, to place a target on your back. For to confess your faith in Christ is not a popular thing in this world. But as Herman Bovink says in his book, The Sacrifice of Praise, confession of Christ goes against flesh and blood. It goes against the world. It goes against Satan. There is strong opposition to the confession of Jesus as the Christ. And we see a similar reality in Psalm 25 and in Lord's Day 52, that your profession of faith in Christ is in the context of enemies. You see that in verse 2 of this psalm. It's, as David says, let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Of course, our catechism says the same. The devil, the world, and even our own flesh never stop attacking us. They are our sworn enemies. And so the confession that you've just made is a confession in the context of enemies. And you are not confessing that you are, are strong enough in yourself to overcome those enemies by your own might, but rather that you are weak and need God's help. We'll look at three things this morning that we see in Psalm 25 
in Lord's Day 52, how they teach us that in confessing faith in the Lord and praying to him as the sixth petition tells us to, we are admitting that we are weak, we are asking for God's help, and we do so third assured that he will hear. We are admitting that we are weak, we are asking for God's help, and we do so assured that God will hear. I want to look at those three things this morning. First, uh, the psalmist's confession of his weakness. He states this somewhat generally in verse 2. He says, don't let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies triumph over me, casting himself on the Lord and admitting that he cannot overcome them himself. But is weak. He returns to this at the end of the psalm in verse 15, his eyes on the Lord who will pluck him out of the net. Verse 16, he says that he is desolate and afflicted. The psalmist speaks of his distress in verse 17, his affliction and pain. Verse 18, even his sins. Verse 19 says, consider my enemies for they are many. On to the end of the song where only God is the one who is able to redeem his people Israel out of their troubles. And so you see at the beginning and end of this psalm, this general admission of weakness, which in the middle of the psalm gets a little bit more specific. So I want you to notice two areas that we see, two areas of weakness that the psalmist mentions throughout this psalm. Uh, verse 5 we see him speaking of, of a sort of um, intellectual or, or volitional weakness that he needs to be led by God in knowing and doing his will. The psalmist here is like a little child reaching up to their, their father, grabbing their dad's hand and saying, lead me and show me the way, keep me on the right path. He admits in verse 8 that God leads sinners in the way, and only he is upright, placing himself in, in a category of weakness as a sinner, even his mind affected by sin. And so he needs to be taught. He's confessing that he is ignorant by nature. We see more of the same in verse 9, where the psalmist says, The humble the Lord guides in justice, the humble he teaches the way. Humble, meaning those who admit they need to be taught. Those who admit that they need someone to guide them in the way God teaches. David is here admitting that he does not possess all wisdom, but he needs someone to lead him in the way that God teaches. And so as the ten of you confess your faith this morning, you are not confessing that you have now graduated from needing God to teach you, from needing God to open your eyes and, and lead you in his way and reveal his truth. But you're confessing, as you did in the first vow that you made, that God's word is the true and complete doctrine of salvation. And that word is to guide you throughout your whole life. By saying, lead me in your truth and teach me, David is saying, guide me by your word, even illumine that word by your spirit, giving understanding to what I read. Now, verse 5 is a, is a prayer to pray every time you open God's word, lead me in your truth, Lord, and teach me. Now, verse 5 is a prayer to pray every time you come to, to gather with God's people and, and hear that word preached, lead me in your truth and teach me. 
This is an admission of, of intellectual weakness that you are ignorant by nature and need Christ the prophet to teach you. And even volitional weakness, that you need his spirit to guide you and enable you to uh, walk in the way that he teaches. So that's the the first of the more specific categories of weakness that we see in this psalm. Intellectual or volitional weakness, needing God's help to know and to do his will. But then second, we see David also admitting moral weakness. Notice he says in verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. The things that he did in the past, the things he may have struggled with since his youth, as you too may have besetting sins you're exposed to in your youth that have been entangling. David admits this moral weakness And says, do not remember me, Lord, according to my sins, but remember me according to your mercy. He's saying in the sort of language we might use, um, having seen the Christ who has come, Lord, do not look at me in my sin, but in your son. Do not remember me according to my sins, but remember me according to your mercy. Look at me through the imputed righteousness of your son. It goes on to say more of the same in verse 11. Lord, pardon my iniquity. And then the the last part of the verse is somewhat surprising. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Notice David is not minimizing his moral weakness, but rather he is magnifying it. For no sin is too great for God to pardon. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on this 11th verse where he said, God allows David to make such a plea where David pleads not the smallness of his sin, but rather the greatness of it because God is moved to mercy by nothing in us but the miserableness of our case. Edwards said, God does not pity sinners because they are worthy, but because they need his pity. And he is glorified, according to the first part of verse 11, in that he proves sufficient to redeem those who are exceedingly sinful. That his blood is sufficient to wash away even the greatest guilt and that he is able to save men to the uttermost and redeem even from the greatest misery. Edward said, It is the honor of Christ to save the greatest sinner even as it is the honor of a doctor who cures the greatest disease. Christ is not a savior who can only handle small sinners. Christ is not your local urgent care clinic, but his blood has power to save even the worst. And David had learned that throughout his life. After the events with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, when he confessed his sins and Nathan the prophet said to him, The Lord has taken away your sin. David understood that the Lord was able to save even the greatest sinner. And so he freely admits the misery of his case. He he freely admits his moral weakness and need for a Savior to wash away his sins. He freely admits that even though he is in a battle, verse 2, that he spends much of his time in the medical tent because he is wounded by his sins and he needs the great physician who comes not for the healthy, Matthew 9, but for the sick to save him. You see it again in verse 18, Lord, look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. 
So as you've confessed your faith this morning, you are not confessing that you have made yourself strong. But in the words of one of the very first hymns that your parents taught you, you are confessing, I am weak, but he is strong. You are confessing, as you did in that second vow, that you despise and humble yourself before God because of your sin. That's what you're confessing this morning. That's the same thing that you'll be confessing in a few weeks as you come to Christ's table. Lord's Day 30 says, Who shall come to Christ's table? And the answer it gives is those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, who yet nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. It's not about graduating out of of moral and spiritual weakness in order to qualify yourself to come to Christ's table. The table is for those who need to be strengthened. The Belgian Confession says God gives us the sacraments because of the weakness of our faith. Do not misunderstand. The Christian life is not about how strong you are, but about how strong Christ is. That's why in this final petition, he tells us to pray. He he leads us admitting that we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and even our own sinful flesh never stop attacking us. And so Jesus tells you to pray that God would uphold you and make you strong by the power of his Holy Spirit that you might not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but firmly resist your enemies until you finally win the complete victory. That is a prayer that must characterize your entire Christian walk. Pray it daily. For the moment you forget that you are weak and depend on your own strength is the moment that your enemies will attack. And so we admit with David in Psalm 25 that we are weak. Then next, we ask for God's help. We ask for his help in in a few different ways. First of all, we see in this psalm in overcoming our enemies, which David doesn't explicitly identify for us. The superscription doesn't tell us anything other than this is a psalm of David, and so we don't know the exact occasion that he's, he's writing this on. We don't know exactly which enemy He's speaking of, but we do know for ourselves that as the Lord gives the Psalms as the songbook and prayer book of his church to, to sing and to pray to him, we do know who our enemies are, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. As David in this psalm speaks in verse 2 of those who seek to shame him, And triumph over him, verse 19, of those who hate him with cruel hatred. Remember who David is. David is the anointed ruler over all of God's kingdom. And so those who oppose him with such hatred are ultimately agents of Satan's kingdom. Remember in uh, Genesis chapter 3, we we see that there's this lens through which we view the rest of human history. That there are two groups of people in the world, the seed of the woman and the seed of God's or the seed of the serpent. And so as David is describing his enemies here, he is describing the enemies of the king of God's kingdom. He is describing those agents of the kingdom of darkness who were seeking to destroy the kingdom of God's beloved son who would come from David's line. And so in a very real sense, we can say that David's chief enemy in this psalm is the devil who seeks to destroy the church 
who seeks to, to bring the church to shame, who seeks to bring the king to shame, who seeks to cause trouble. Verse 22, for all Israel, not only the Davidic king who he hates, but all who identify with him. As we see this movement from the beginning of the psalm to the end of hatred for the king of Israel to hatred for all Israel who needs God to intervene and redeem Israel out of her troubles. So really the the situation in which David finds himself in Psalm 25 is not that far from the situation in which we find ourselves today. We too have many enemies who seek to destroy the church, who seek to bring it to shame, who seek to cause trouble for God's people, ultimately because they hate the son of David. And so they will seek to bring scorn and contempt upon you. Satan will seek to bring scorn and contempt upon you for breaking with his kingdom and following Christ. He will seek to undermine the vows that you have just made. He will seek to make you despise the government and discipline of the church that you have just vowed to submit to. He will seek to make you ashamed of Christ and to love your sinful nature, which you have just vowed to put to death. These are the the chief aims of our chief enemy. And yet, not only that, but we see in verse 19 that his subjects are many. And so the world around you will join in that opposition. The world around you will seek to entice you with its sinful pleasures. The world around you will mock you because of your faith in Christ. Will ridicule you because of your beliefs and practices. Will pervert and misrepresent them. That is the cost of following the king. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 to his disciples, in essence, I have a target on my back and so now do you. If they're going to mock me and and, um, make me suffer, if they're going to misrepresent the things that I do and the words that I speak, if they're going to call me Beelzebub, they're going to do the same to you. So not only does the devil oppose the confession that you have just made, but the world is angered by it. And even your own sinful flesh at times will resist keeping the vows that you've just made. And so you ask for God's help in empowering you by his spirit to overcome these sworn enemies who never stop attacking you. You ask for his help in granting forgiveness when you sin as David models for us in verse 7 and verse 11 and verse 18. And you ask him to help you know and walk In his ways, verse 4, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me. Verses 8 and 9, teach sinners like me in the way. Guide me in justice. This whole psalm is simultaneously an admission of weakness and asking for God's help. And how is it that God is going to provide this help for which David asked, and for which we, as we sing Psalm 25 with him, for which we ask. When we are not strong in ourselves to overcome the temptation of Satan and even the world around us, how does God provide us with the help that we need but by the Spirit of Christ? The same Spirit we poured out at Pentecost, and so we pray in Lord's Day 52, Lord, uphold me and make me strong by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
What we celebrate today on Pentecost Sunday is God answering the believer's prayer in Psalm 25 and many other places throughout Scripture for strength to resist our sworn enemies and be upheld and made strong so that we are not defeated in this spiritual fight. And praying for the grace of pardon when we err, purchased by the blood of Jesus and applied by the Spirit through word and sacrament. We pray for the grace of illumination by that same Spirit as the Spirit of Pentecost illumines God's word and shows us Christ in it and leads us to walk in his ways. The weakness that Psalm 25 leads us to admit is answered by the help of God's Spirit whom he grants to preserve us from falling in battle, whom he grants to strengthen us for the fight, to fight the good fight as Paul charges Timothy two times in 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 6, and and the, the help of God's Holy Spirit also to encourage us when we sin and lead us as you said that you desire in that third vow according to his word. God grants his Holy Spirit to help you in those very things, to apply the grace of the gospel when you sin, to show him or show you the, the truths of his word and lead you in them, and to strengthen you to walk according to that word. Psalm 25 teaches us to pray for God's spirit to uphold us and make us strong, to overcome our moral and intellectual weakness, to overcome our enemies. And as it does... Psalm 25 does not lead us or leave us to wonder whether God will answer that prayer. But the final thing that we see in this psalm is a strong assurance that God will hear. And you see David's confidence in verse 3, where he says, No one will be ashamed who waits on the Lord. What is it to wait on the Lord but to pray to him. And as David does so, as he waits on the Lord in fervent prayer, he does so assured that God will hear, that no one who prays to him, who waits upon him, will be ashamed. You see the same thing in verse 5, where he says, you are the God of my salvation on you. I wait all the day. Again, he is casting himself on God in prayer, and he does so assured that the God to whom he prays is the God of his salvation. Verse 15, he says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord. He will pluck my feet out of the net. Notice the confidence with which David speaks. He doesn't say, Maybe he'll intervene and save, but he will pluck my feet from the net. We see this assurance throughout that God will hear cry of his people, and that they will enjoy grace from his hands. Verse 10, the grace of his mercy and truth, as he says, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Verse 11, the grace of his pardon, where David says, pardon my iniquity, for it is great that grace the Lord will grant to those who, who seek this favor from his hand. Verse 13, the grace even of inheriting the earth. Verse 14, the grace of his friendship. Where the new King James there in verse 14 says, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. That that word speaks of of secret conversation, of, of intimate company. 
Speaking of the the sorts of things that you only share with people uh, that you are are closest with, the sorts of things that you would only share, the kinds of secrets that you only share with your closest friends. So verse 14 is saying, in essence, intimate communion and friendship with the Lord belongs to those who fear him. Intimate communion and friendship with the Lord belong to to those who fear him. That is the blessing of being united with Christ, that you enjoy intimate communion with him. That is the blessing of coming to the Lord's table where there is an intensification of our experience of that union with the one who has condescended to to join us together with him in covenant. One one theologian defines a covenant as, as something like a friendship ratified. It is a a close, intimate communion that we have with the Lord that is ratified by the blood of the covenant. These are the blessings, the graces that the Lord pours out on his people and assures those who wait on him and look to his son that he will give. He will hear our prayer because he is a closest of friends. That's why at the end of the catechism in, in question 129, it says that that little word, amen, means this will truly and surely be. For it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. David longed for guidance to know God's ways. Uh, David longed for deliverance from his enemies, the, the devil, the world, his own flesh. David longed for pardon from his sin and an experiential um, knowledge of that pardon. But even more than he longed for each of these things, God desired to grant them. And if you look just a little bit earlier in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 117 tells us that the reason is because as we pray to God, even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Because he is the yes and amen to all God's promises, 2 Corinthians 1.20. The one who makes all of this possible the one who makes this provision of of help for weak and needy sinners like you possible, the one who makes this friendship and communion with the Lord possible, the one who died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and poured out his spirit for weak and needy sinners like you and like me and like all of us gathered here this morning. And so as you confess your faith in the Lord this morning, your confession is not a confession of your own strength, but rather of your weakness and of his strength. As as your parents taught you to sing, I am weak, but he is strong. The gospel that you have confessed is a gospel where Christ, by grace, saves needy sinners who never graduate from desperate dependence on him. But the whole of your Christian life is to be lived with the posture of Lord's Day 52 and the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment. So Lord, uphold us and make us strong. By the power of your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who works through word and sacrament, the fellowship of his people, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen.
Let's pray. Father, we pray for James and Jenna, for Ryan and Alicia, Sarah and Hannah, Ella and Natalie, Josiah and Reese, as they have confessed this morning that Christ is their prophet, priest, and king, the promised Messiah who died for their sins to provide the pardon David speaks of in this psalm and then ascended into heaven to send the help for which David prays. Help in knowing your word. Help in being able to do your word. Help in overcoming our enemies and being assured of your pardon for sin. Lord, we confess that Christ gives that help in sending his Holy Spirit into the world. And so we pray that you would uphold each of these young people and make them strong by the power of your spirit. They might not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but firmly resist their enemies until they finally win the complete victory. For just as they have confessed Christ's name today before you, he will one day confess their names before you, his Father. Lord, we pray also that if any are gathered here today who do not know this hope, that the very confession they have just witnessed of Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, whom you sent into the world to save us from our sins, even to pardon our iniquities, though they be great. That if any here gathered this morning do not know that hope and do not know that assurance that David knows and that we know, that you would move them to the same by your Holy Spirit. All this we pray in Jesus' name.